This morning we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 2 and start on Ephesians chapter 3. Um, where we left off last time was verse 18. We've been talking about the separation of Gentiles and Jews and that through Christ's blood, that through Christ he's really trying to unify everyone under Christ and in Christ. And we'll just, we'll read through it and finish the chapter and we'll talk about it. Here we go. Now, first, picking up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, again, I want to emphasize that these strangers and foreigners are the Gentiles. It's it's being contrasted with the Jews and God's family. <coughs> As we were talking about in verse 11, <clears throat> once called Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, made by the flesh, made in the flesh by hands. So we're we're talking about national differences here. Just just to reclarify all that and reframe it, that we're not talking about people that didn't know Jesus and people that do know Jesus. We're really talking about Jews and Gentiles. Hmm. But Therefore, he's concluding everything, drawing it all to, to an end before he moves on to his next point in chapter 3. But he's saying that you're no longer strangers because you have access through him, seeing verse 18. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. And so through him, through Jesus, in Jesus, we have access to the Father. Um, and we, when that happens, we become fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here's the first concept that we're looking at here. Citizens, we, we actually become citizens of a, a new country. We call it the heavenly kingdom or uh, the kingdom of God. And we get this these rights um, because we're a part of another nation, another kingdom, just like Americans have certain rights Japanese have certain rights, and those rights are applied to us when we get in Jesus. And we looked at some of those uh, rights. They were spiritual blessings back there in verse in chapter one, which is I'll just go ahead and go flip back there. Um, verses three: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we were talking about the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places those are the those are some of the the rights that we have that we are blessed by the father that we have salvation that we have eternal life with him and so those are some of the uh things that we get by being citizens of this heavenly kingdom um and if you remember you know and jesus talks about the heavenly kingdom it says seek first the kingdom of god and he'll give you all the things that you need here on the earth too the things that you need that's uh, Matthew 6, end of the chapter, I believe. Um, but so he'll give you not just spiritual blessings, but you'll also get earthly blessings too, but not always to the the want 
the the excessive list of wants. He'll give you what you need is the word there. Very clarification. He'll give you food and shelter um, and warmth. Or maybe you need to be poor and hungry and in the cold so that you learn. And we leave it to our Heavenly Father to know what is best for us. Sometimes what we think is best, usually what we think is best is not always what God thinks is best. And so we, we, we depend and trust on that. And so this being citizens also the, another interesting idea is that we have a Lord, we have a king in who is in charge of this, of this kingdom. And this Lord and King is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. He sits on the throne and he reigns. And in this this heavenly kingdom, he is our Savior, our Protector, our King, our our Lord, in whom we are trying to um, to follow. To to our example should be that of the example of Jesus Christ. And so, how we see Jesus walking in the old in the New Testament, we too should walk in a similar manner because we are his citizens. So, uh, yes, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so we, we see the saints um, dialogue as we talked about again in verse chapter one, verse one, that the saints are, are people that are walking around that have Christ in them. They're not after you die, a church council gets together and says, this person was holy, this person deserves sainthood. It's not that. It's that we are a part of the kingdom. We are called saints <coughs> here and now. And and I want to join, so that's the New Testament believers. And I kind of, I think the members of the household of God may be the Old Testament believers that were being put into the same family that we're bring coming into the same kingdom that those uh, saints of the old testament and the saints of the new testament are coming together being unified in christ um either way what, what we're going to get to in the in chapter three is that we're all going to be merged into one like we're one household we're one people under god in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ is being the chief cornerstone. So the term apostles and prophets, um, he's going to use in the next chapter two, and we're going to see that it's really New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets. And we'll look at that in a, in a second. But so the, the idea of apostles and prophets, so often we make things mean the same thing just like I, I try to to make a difference between citizens and saints we can so quickly read over those things but he's saying them separately differently for a reason to get us to think and so apostles generally usually in the bible means someone that was uh, alive during jesus's time and witnessed jesus's teaching and his resurrection Usually that's what an apostle is. We see actually Paul using the term apostle for himself. He didn't, as far as we understand, he didn't meet Jesus in the flesh, but he did have that um, meeting with him after he was resurrected on the road to Damascus. Um, but generally apostles is, is set aside for people that have, are from 2,000 years ago that met Christ 
in the flesh or through a very very strong vision um, and so that's 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 it that's that's the definition we work with uh, the, the idea of there being modern day prof, uh, apostles is kind of strange because of the way that they use that word quite specifically throughout the New Testament so that you'll see people that claim to be modern day apostles I feel very uncomfortable with them calling themselves apostles um, we're saints I don't have a problem with that we see that being used all throughout um, Acts but the word apostle has like a very specific meaning and you'll see it in Revelation that there's a temple that's being talked about that has like 12 layers of the the apostles talking about the 12 that were called by um, God by Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry and so prophets again aren't just people that that speak the future it's, it's literally just people that speak god's word and sometimes there is a future aspect to it but usually it's just people that are repeating what god has told them so the word prophet isn't some someone that can see the future it's someone that speaks truth to people using god's own word so the apostles and prophets are those that are walking around during this 2000 year ago period when paul was writing and it's peter and james and john and and the way that they're quoting Jesus and teaching what Jesus has said and correcting people as, as they need to be corrected. Now we're talking about this foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the chief cornerstone is Jesus. He's the one that, that fits so perfectly into, into it or he's the beginning of it to build everything else off of. Now, I've heard this story from many pastors, and I cannot find the source. So I tend not to tell these things, although I'd like to tell this one um, without having the source. And the, the only source that I can find is it's from a rabbinic tradition. So rabbis used to tell this story um, about when the first temple was built, that's Solomon's temple, that's, you know, a thousand years before Jesus Christ came, that when they were cutting the stones for the foundation of the temple, uh, the, the stone cutter was miles away, kilometers away, um, and was bringing them in. And each one was marked with what layer it was on, because the temple mound had to be built up, and which order they went in. And they'd mark, mark it, they'd chisel it into the back, which one was which. And so the, they, as they got a stone, you got, you know, layer one, stone one, layer two, or layer one, stone two. And so they just put them into place. And they were, they're so tight. It's amazing what they used to be able to do that you can't get a credit card in between them. They're so amazingly tight. But so they started receiving stones and they were laying out the Temple Mount. And they got one that had no markings on it. It was a perfectly unmarred stone. But they didn't know what to do with it. They referred to the plans, the blueprints, however they did it back then, and they didn't know where it went. So that the story is they threw it over the Temple Mound down into the Kidron Valley because it didn't have a place. It didn't belong. And so they got all the way done with the Temple Foundation. And then they're waiting for the what they call the chief cornerstone, the last stone they're going to set in. And they're like, they were waiting for it and waiting for it. It never came. And so they sent back and said, hey, where is this? They said, we sent it a while ago. You guys didn't receive it? You, you signed? You said you received it. And so they, they finally figured out that it was the stone that they had rejected and thrown over the wall. Uh, and so they had to rehaul it back up. 
from the Kidron Valley where they dumped it and set it in place and it fit perfectly as they they intended it to. And so this idea, so this the story again. I don't I don't have any source information, and I, I'm repeating the same story that they did. But so this is just for the foundation of the Temple Mound, and I want to like you know, like point out that this. Uh, this picture here is the temple. And so what they had to do before they could actually build the temple is they had to build this big flat foundation for them to build the temple on. And this foundation, they because they, it, it was a mountain, and so they had to build up this foundation for them to build the temple on. Um, and that's what we're talking about. And so this is like the last stone they're putting in place on the foundation of the temple. Now, sometimes, modern-day people, we think of, no, the cornerstone, which is, apparently I closed out of it. Let me go back, see if they left it here. No. So, the the cornerstone is generally above ground in modern-day buildings and stuff like that. Yeah, so the cornerstone tends to be up above, kind of like this one, and it's a part of just the building. Sometimes it's the first stone laid for a building so they can square everything off of that stone. Um, Like this one would be more what I would imagine a modern-day cornerstone to be, although this is a hand drawing. And it's it's to straighten the the laying of the, the walls, because if everything is square and... Especially the chief cornerstone because that, that helps you lay out the walls. But the way that this sounds, the way that that story sounded, and the way that we're talking about here, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, we're still talking about the foundation of the temple. We're talking about the base layer that goes underneath the temple, not the building that's going up above it. And I say all that to say that the foundation is laid. We don't need to add to the foundation the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ are the foundation of our faith. We don't need to add to that foundation. What we're doing instead, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grow into a holy temple in the Lord. So that means we, as the New Testament saints, as those that come after the apostles and the prophets of Jesus' time, we are building the temple. We're building the place to worship where God will come and dwell. And so that foundation is laid. And I say that to say, like, we're not looking for any more revelation from God for Christendom. We're not, we're not waiting for any more prophets to come, like Muhammad or John Smith or, or anyone else, because the foundation has been laid. We don't need to add to that foundation, that base core understanding of what the gospel is. There's no further revelation. What we're doing now is just we're just building a temple to worship God, to praise the Lord, to offer sacrifices. <coughs> That's what's going on. That's what we're being fitted together for, to be that holy temple. And so this is not just singular, like, I'm a temple to God, which our bodies are a temple to God, but we're all being built into a temple of God. So there's a corporate nature of us gathering together and bringing praise corporately um, to the Lord. And and so that's that's what's being expressed here. 
And it says again, going through verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of the God in the Spirit. So we're spiritually being built together with other believers so that God can come dwell among us. And that's building of the kingdom and building of the temple to offer sacrifices. And that's what I have to say. Um, so again, the idea of the chief cornerstone is an Old Testament idea. We see it in Psalm 118, 118 uh, verse 22. The stone which the builders has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So, so this would give us the idea that the story that I just told that I have no idea where it came from came toward the when the Psalms were being written. And so we don't, that would have happened for David. So it's kind of like complicated. I don't, I don't know how that story fits in if David wrote the Psalm, but I don't, I don't actually know who the author of the Psalm is. But again, he's quoting old, testament scriptures that people would have understood and and so the context of this is i'll praise you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation so that we're talking about god here because we're talking about the lord and we'll see that the lord um is again god's holy name and this is his doing this is one of the most quoted scriptures, uh, Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. It's quoted in the Gospels, it's quoted in the letters. This is an important idea for us to understand that the people that were kind of building God's kingdom, the Israelites, they rejected the chief cornerstone and they, they missed it. They missed the perfect unmarred stone that finished the foundation. And they missed it. And the Israelites still miss it today. They don't receive this stone. They don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Um, yeah, Mark, Jesus talks about this. He quotes it himself. If I can get to it, there it is. Here, he tells this, this parable about the vine dresser, uh, about the wicked vine dressers. And, and he says... We'll go through the we'll go through the parable. So it says in the Mark twelve verse one, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the vineyard vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent that sent them another servant and at him they threw stones wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated and again he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some therefore still having one son his beloved he also sent him to them last saying they will respect my son but those vine dressers said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vine vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has come has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitudes, so they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So we have a few things we need to consider here. So we we obviously this this is a parable. It's talking about the kingdom. And the, the man that planted the vineyards, God. God's, God's the man in this story. And the vine dresser is the one that he set to take care of the vineyard are the Israelites. And he sent prophets to them and said, Hey, stop rebelling, stop stop turning from your your, your stop turning to other false gods or false religions or f- false idols and turn back to me. Give me what's my due. And they refused him. And so they killed some of the prophets. They stoned some prophets. They they rarely ever listened to the men that God sent to them. And he says, finally, at last, that I, they'll respect my son. And he sends his son. And that's the, uh, the same exact image that we have from Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. He is coming to us. God expected them and wanted them. To respect their son and still and give what was due to them, and they continued to rebel against him. Now we don't see anywhere that God wanted the the Father, God, the man that planted the vineyard, that he wanted his son to be killed. That's not the intention of the Father. That's not what's going on here. It's not as he would prefer it to be but that's what happened and he god knew it was going to happen so we have this idea that that this was the lord's doing it's not that the lord caused the israelites to reject him that's nowhere in the story but that there would be a chief cornerstone this was the lord's doing that there would be a messiah someone that would come someone that would save everyone um through that and the pharisees hated god for whatever reason they just didn't want to accept his his messiah his savior it's it's so interesting um just to stay in this this area this idea there's this another another story about so we've been talking about in, in ephesians about predestination and foreknowledge and determinism and and what does god cause us to do does he cause us to have faith does he make us against our will or give us the will to have faith? And, and so here's one story where we see that he's trying to get what's due from him for, for, for God. And he doesn't do it. And then again in Isaiah 5, a similar thing, which is when um, Jesus is telling this parable, this is what they would have been thinking about. This is exactly where the Pharisees' mind should have gone, Isaiah 5. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Now let me sing to my beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Now so we also hear that God says later on when he's baptizing Jesus, that, or when Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here's a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest of vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. Pause. So 
God built the world. He set it up. He's building the kingdom. Uh, he's building up the Israelites. He's he's giving them everything they need to produce good grapes. And what do we see happen? So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes, which are you know small and seedy and not good. God is doing everything, everything that he needs to do for us to produce good grapes. And when we rebel, when we turn from God, when we decide that we want to be Lord instead of him, we produce bad fruit. And, and just to clarify, and now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, verse 3, and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, then when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So God says, I've done it all. I've given you what you need. I've set you in the land. I've built your, your Israelite kingdom, not the heavenly kingdom at that point in time or in the Old Testament. I expect there to be good fruit. And there's not. He's saying, Jerusalem, why are you producing bad fruit? And this is constantly what God is saying. Like, guys, come on. Follow me. Have faith in me. Walk after me. Stop chasing after these bad, uh, these idols. Stop chasing after everything but me. And so he says, what's, what's, going to be the, what's going to be the result of this? I've given you everything you need to produce good fruit. This is what I expect from you. And, and this is in much contrast to the Calvinistic, deterministic way of thinking that God predestined everything to happen, that you don't have a choice, that, that every molecule is controlled, your sin is controlled by God, and everything is predetermined. Here, God is predetermining this vineyard to grow, to produce good fruit. He's done everything he needs, but us sinners, us sinful people... Not just the Israelites, us too, because we're also there. We're also uh, um, guilty of, of trespassing and sin. We produce wild grapes. And that's verse 5 in Isaiah 5. And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, I shall, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns and i will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it so he's saying that because this vineyard because of who he's what he's been trying to produce in the nation of israel isn't producing the fruit that's supposed to he's going to tear it out he's going to get rid of he's going to destroy it not because he wants to he put all the work into it he put the commandments and the promises and he was really working with the israelites and man they just had a hard heart (coughs) they rebelled against God they turned away from God so what does he do he's going to tear it up and he warns them over and over and this is what happens to the nation of Israel because of their rebellious heart because they turned from the Lord they're going to be pulled up and new vine dressers or new new vines will be planted new vine dressers will be given to the kingdom which is what he's talking about in Mark and they in Mark they know it's about them they know that this parable is about them casting out the, the sun. And so we have this, this idea of the cornerstone is being rejected by the people that are building it. And so this is the Israelites that are rejecting Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And so that's that's where that's where we're gonna leave it for today. This we'll just finish chapter two. And it's so important <clears throat> that we understand that. 
we need to we we have obligations to God because he's our lord because we are citizens of his kingdom we have a law to follow and it's not the old testament law we have a, a new law a new commandment which is which is love one another as Jesus has loved us that's that's what Jesus says is the the new <laughs> commandment that he gives us and so it's it's the one commandment that God couldn't have given Moses in the garden or not in the garden on the on Mount Sinai because no, they hadn't seen God walk among the people they hadn't seen God love others sacrificially they hadn't seen God heal people like Jesus healed people physically but but most importantly spiritually and so Jesus comes with this new commandment that couldn't have been given at an earlier time he comes with the commandment love one another as I have loved you and so this is our commandment. If, if we're going to be a part of this kingdom, this is, this is our mandate. This is what we should do. Not, not to be saved, but now that we're saved, now that we're in the kingdom, this is the law we should follow. This is how we should walk after Christ. And so that's how we're going to see fruit. That's how we're going to grow. That's how people are going to know us. They're going to see the love that we have because we have love one another. And so this, this idea of love isn't just any love, it's it's the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that he models for us, that he shows us the example of how we're supposed to walk. So now that we're in him, that's what we should model. That's who we should follow. And and that's that's it. That's how we need to live our life as we follow Christ. That's those are the rules. That's there's not go back to the Ten Commandments. It's not the whole six hundred and thirteen laws. It's love one another as Christ loved us. And so we have to go back and look at Christ and see how did he love us. And it's very important. It's our model for marriage, as we're going to see later on in the chapters, our model for walking. Christ is the center, the beginning, the end, the everything to us. So, Lord, thank you for this morning you've given us. Thank you for just these few verses that we've we've dug into and and all the depth that is found in them that we, we can glean off of them in, in 30 minutes, Lord. And I just pray that you would help us to continue considering the your chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, um, and how we need to be building a temple for you with, with our hearts and our souls and our spirit, Lord God. How how can we work with you? How can we allow your Holy Spirit to to lead us and guide us in this world help us to be a part of the kingdom your heavenly kingdom each and every day it's not going to be a big change and surprise for those that are walking with you when we die and end up with you lord god we're we're going to see what your kingdom's like here and now if we allow you to work through us god help us to praise you and worship you and soften our hearts to you lord god so that your your will can be done on on earth as it already is in heaven lord help us to build your kingdom here here now in jesus name i pray amen mm -hmm.